pray together. Father, thank you for our time together now to look into your word. Thank you that you are worthy to be praised. Thank you that um, you are sovereign over all things, that you are working out your glory and our good in every circumstance of life. And Father, we can truly proclaim as this song says, blessed be your name in every season of our lives, in every situation that we face. Father, thank you that uh, you teach us, that you explain to us who you are, or you explain to us how we ought to live, proclaim to us the gospel through your word. And so, Father, now as we open up your word together, I pray that uh, you will open our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears and our hearts, Lord, and we will receive the truth that uh, is before us. Thank you for the great privilege we have of knowing you and being known by you. We ask you, as a result of our time together, that you would make us more like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. How's everybody doing this morning? Still waking up? All right. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Read our text beginning in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which was in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Remember last time began this message looking at a blueprint for biblical leadership that we find here in verses 5 through 9 of Titus chapter 1. And so I've been thinking about church leadership a lot. I've been thinking about the importance of church leadership. I had the privilege this week of having some friends come visit my wife and I and my family from the great far country of Nepal. Uh, They are missionaries there. They've been there 10 years. These friends of ours actually served with me when I was a youth pastor many, 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 many years ago, um, the mid-2000s, and uh, they were some of my youth sponsors during that time. The four of us ran camps together and spent four years together and and so they became very good friends and then they departed for Nepal and I left that church and went to the master seminary and uh, we didn't see each other again and I was able to run into his name is Ben at uh, Shepherd's Conference last year we were able to get something set up because they were going to be here and over over this time during during their furlough and and so they were able to come down and I, 
I kind of knew what they went to do when they left Cortez, but it kind of changed over the course of a few years. And come to find out that they have been uh, working with pastors and they have been working with baby Christians for, for several years now. The village in which they work in, or the villages, I should say, they are set up in this valley that's about 35 miles long. And they actually first went over to Kathmandu and realized that there are a number of believers over there doing work. And they said, where can we go where Christ has not been named? And so they went to this northern part of Nepal. It's the least reached people groups of the country. And, uh, and the living conditions in which they live are unbelievable, hard to fathom for a person like myself. But they got there, and they met one other Christian. And now, after seven years, as a result of, of this Christian's faithfulness to the Lord, and as a result of their ministry, in this valley consisting of about 35 miles long and, and about 12 to 14 different villages of people, there are now three to 400 believers and about nine churches. And it was just really exciting to hear about that. But as we talked and spent time together, you could realize that the, you know, one of the great desires of their hearts was to see these churches established with leadership, to see more resources become available to, to, these, to these pastors so that they can train their people, so that they become mature in Christ. And that is what we've been talking about, that God gifts men, places them in leadership positions in his church so that they will equip the saints for ministry and so that people will be established in Christ and they will become mature, they will become complete in the faith, Paul says. And that's what Paul left Titus to do here on the island of Crete. The great Puritan Thomas Brooks once wrote, a preacher's life should be a commentary of his doctrine. His practice should be a counterpart of his sermons. Heavenly doctrines should always be adorned with a heavenly life. That leads us into what I want us to see this morning. You know, as a preacher, as a pastor, those words are very convicting to me. Those words are like a, a flashing siren to me. That has to be how I operate. That has to be how a person who God has called and placed to shepherd his church has to think in those terms. That heavenly doctrine should always be adorned with a heavenly life. It's this statement by Brooks that is a summary statement for the character qualifications that we find in this text. This is the standard. This is the bar for men whom God has called to shepherd his sheep. A man's life must match his message. And you remember what we studied foundationally last time as we went over to Ephesians chapter 4, that Christ has graciously gifted leaders to his church for the purpose of equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry with the goal of every Christian, every believer becoming mature in Christ. Well, what then does this look like structurally 
in the life of the church? What must the man be like who is going to shepherd God's flock? How must this man be gifted if he is going to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry and see God's people come to maturity? Well, we find the answers to these questions in the verses before us this morning. And I must tell you that I had high hopes as I engaged in this study again this week that we would work all the way through verse 9 and be able to move on. But you know very well that that is just not true in my life very often. And so we will begin to work through some of these verses and then next time we'll just pick up wherever we get, wherever we leave off this morning. Titus has been left on the island of Crete to find and to train up these kind of men and to establish leadership in the churches that he and Paul had a hand in planting. And it is in Paul's instruction to Titus in these first few verses where we note this. Three observations regarding Titus's objective in, the, in Crete, which provide believers with a blueprint for establishing church leadership. And the first observation that I want you to note is this, that elders must be a plurality of men. Elders must be a plurality of men. And we see this there at the end of verse 5. As Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Titus was to set things in order, and we talked about that last time. And he was to, to appoint elders, Notice elders being plural, plural there in every city. Why? Because they had established churches in those cities on that island. It doesn't say that he was just to establish one elder to run each individual church, but rather that he was to establish, to appoint a plurality of elders. Three Greek terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament, and they can be translated elder in various scripture passages. Each of these terms help define a different aspect of the elder's ministry. He is to be a man of noble character, and all of the texts that talk about elders say that. He's also to be an overseer, he is to be a shepherd, and he is to be a pastor-teacher. He is to guard the church, he is to guide the church, and he is to teach the church. Paul, when saying goodbye to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, reminds them of their duties in verses 27 through 28. You remember that he was not going to see them again, and so he met them there on the shores of Miletus, and, and he was saying goodbye to these elders. He had spent two years in Ephesus helping to establish that church there amidst that mass idolatry that was a part of that city. And so Paul came, and if you note that text there in Acts chapter 20, they say goodbye with, with, much, with, with many tears and um, with great sadness. 
Paul tells them this. He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He taught them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's telling them to protect the sheep. To shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. To to guide the people. To teach them, to protect them, to, to guide them. That was Paul's purpose for those elders there at Ephesus. That was Paul's desire as as an elder himself. And Paul makes clear here in verse 5 of our text that he is is not to do that alone. He is to be a part of a, a group of men that undertake this responsibility. In God's wisdom, a plurality of qualified leaders protects both the leaders themselves and the church congregation. It protects the leaders from false accusation. It protects them from pride. And it protects them from many temptations that, that might surface for a guy who is making decisions on his own. I've seen churches operate in this way. Where there is one guy primarily who is at the top of this chain of leaders and and they're they're kind of down here and he's kind of up here and and he just functions kind of like a dictator declaring his will and these folks are to carry this out and the church is supposed to fall in line well when you have a plurality of elders a plurality a group of men who who are equal who make the decisions that that God directs them to make for the church, it it protects each of those men from raising up and becoming prideful and becoming someone who becomes dictator type. It protects the church from a man who uses his uh, appointed office as an opportunity to become a dictator and to run the church according to his own personal ambition. There are different kinds of denominations in Christianity, and there are some denominations that just have that. They just have a senior pastor. There's really no leadership that function with that pastor. It's just that pastor, and, and he makes all of the decisions for the church. I've told you about one of those churches before that I didn't have personal interaction with, but my my father did when we were growing up. It was in the same town where we were, where the pastor would, would call out people from the pulpit who were doing things that in his eyes were sinful, like a lady wearing pants or a lady chewing gum. He was very, very, very dictator-like. There are churches like that that are out there. Having a plurality of elders keeps a church from being, from being commanded like that from that type of person. Another benefit that comes from having a plurality of elders is the collective wisdom that comes from a group of spirit-filled godly men meeting together and discussing the spiritual issues of the church. Each 
elder that God gifts to the church provides valuable biblical insight that is used to inform their decisions. If you think about it in terms of our world, this is why important people in our world have advisory boards or cabinets or or committees that help them think through important decisions they need to make. They don't just make these decisions alone in a, in a box or in a vacuum. They, they have these boards where they'll go and they'll bounce ideas off, to the, off of these people to see if, you know, this idea is, is out to lunch and they should stay away from that or, or this idea is a good idea and they get, they get some affirmation in that. That's why those things exist. How much more important is it for the church to have a group of men where God has filled them with his spirit and given them wisdom to make decisions to lead his church. You see, it's God in his wisdom who created the collective wisdom of qualified men to be the means of governing his people. Right? To be the to be the means. This is, this is how it is to function. This is how healthy churches operate is you have this plurality of men whom God has set in place to come together, to talk about things, to make decisions, to come to a collective decision, to take the church in a particular direction. That has been established by God. That has been one of the joys of my life since I have been here at Countryside. I've been a part of many elder boards at several different churches. And some of those churches, the elder board was run better than others. And I've seen, I've had points in my life, in my ministry, where the last thing on this earth that I wanted to do was go to an elder meeting. Because it just didn't function as it was supposed to function. Coming here and sitting, I remember sitting in those first few elder meetings when, when I came as, as a pastor here and thinking, oh, this is how this is supposed to work. This is how, it, this, this is why Titus 1 is what it is to, to see this happen. Not that every man in the room agrees on every single detail of every single thing. But when they leave that room, they're in full agreement with the decision that's going forward. And now joining those men as an elder, it's, just, it's, a, it's an unbelievable privilege to be in the same room as those men and to watch this happen and to see then how God uses that collective wisdom with the body of Christ here, particularly at Countryside. God designed this in this way for a purpose, and it's for the good of his people. This is a gift to his people that he has given when he gives this kind of leadership to the church. Another important thing to note regarding the necessity of a church establishing a plurality of elders is that elders must be men. They must be men. The terms used to describe the office of elder in the New Testament are all masculine terms in the Greek language. 
This also becomes crystal clear in the next verse of our text where Paul begins to describe the qualifications of elders by saying, if any man is above reproach. And then he says that he must be the husband of one wife. Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.12 regarding the role of women in the context of the local church when he says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. In these passages where these things are described, Paul is not bashing on the equality of men and women. Men and women are equal in the sight of God, all created in the image of God, but there are particular roles And you are well taught here at Countryside. You understand that. There are roles in the home. There are roles in society. There are roles in the church. And Paul is is exhorting Titus to appoint men, qualified men, in every city. Again, because that is what God has designed. There are a lot of churches who have decided to leave that particular area of of doctrine that is clear in the Bible. And there are a lot of churches that are suffering because of that. Again, not saying that women don't have a lot to bring to the table. They do, and, and they serve the church. And we wouldn't function as a church without the, the wonderful women of this church who do what they do. The body of Christ wouldn't function as as the body, as the metaphor that it's given in Scripture if, if women weren't a part of that. But God has set it up very clearly that men are to be the ones that are set into these places of leadership to, to lead the church. And when we deteriorate there and when we walk away from that particular reality, Things in the church do not operate as they ought. So when it comes to the blueprint that God has given for establishing leadership in the church, we see first, of, we see first that elders must be a plurality of men. How then are these men chosen to lead? What type of men are they to be? What are they to be like? If that's what God has established, if that's what Paul told Titus to do, to appoint elders in every city, then what kinds of men should be in those roles? Well, we find the answers to those questions in the second observation that I want you to note in our text. And that is this, that elders must be qualified men. Elders must be qualified men. And we'll see that in verses 6 through 9. We'll make it through just a little bit of that this morning, and then we'll finish it next time. But Titus was to place men in every church in Crete to govern and lead God's people. But they, just, they weren't just supposed to be any man to be appointed to that task. They were to be particular men. And we see in verses 6 through 9 that these men were to be men who were qualified in both their character and their giftedness. And before we walk through these qualifications, it's important to understand that part 
of the process that, that Titus had to employ in appointing the elders in every city was both to identify potential candidates and then to train them to be elders. So many churches do not understand that. That as God gifts men and places them into the church to, to lead the church, to govern the body of Christ, that there is a process by which to find those men. Some churches just think, we need to fill this seat. Let's find the guy. He's, oh, he's faithful in his attendance. He, he looks well-dressed. It looks like he's got things together. Let's take him. Let's stick him in that chair and make him a leader of this church. I have been a part of churches where that happens. And they do that because they believe in what Paul told Titus to do. It's not for, for lack of wanting to be biblical. There is a desire to be biblical. There's a desire to have a plurality of elders for, for all the reasons we mentioned. To protect the group of men, to protect the church, to lead the church, to bring the church to maturity. So they want to do that. They want to fulfill the mandate of Ephesians chapter 4. Not trying to go against that, but they, they have never thought through how do we get this type of man into that type of role. And, and they have not been trained themselves in terms of how to identify and then how to train elders. And so they just say, well, this it's the next guy up. It's, it's a take your turn mentality. This guy hasn't been an elder for a while. It's time for him to go get a chance to serve in that role. That is not how you approach leadership in the church, but that is a how many churches approach leadership in the church. Certainly God has set, has his men that he sets aside to be elders. Again, he is the one who gifts the church with those men. We saw that from Ephesians 4. But in order for them to become elders, they need to be identified and they need to be trained. This process involves observing men's character traits and, and abilities and, and vetting them in regard to their ability to know and to handle the truth of the word of God. The last thing the church wants to do. It is better for the church to go many years with just one or two people who are faithfully, humbly, lovingly leading the people than to just say, you know what, we need five elders. <laughs> Everybody close their eyes and let's just spin in a circle and pick five men and put them in that position. It is far better for the church to operate with the great desire to have a plurality of elders in that small, tiny little function for a while as men are identified and trained because you get the wrong type of people in leadership and the direction of your church starts to sway from being biblical. As the leadership goes, so goes the church. If the leadership is not committed to God, to his word, and to operating as the church ought to operate, then it will begin to drift. This process fleshes out differently in various congregations, but it is a necessary process. There has to be and identification, there has to be training. 
has to be there. And I think it's fair to say that the more robust that process is, and this makes sense, the more robust that process is, the more quality the leadership of the church is. You know, what scares the mess out of me right now is this. Doctors who are getting their training online. Now, if you're training to be a doctor online, this is no personal offense to you. This terrifies me, right? Because when I go to a doctor, first of all, Google reviews, right? That's where you start with everything in life, right? Google is a pretty high priority. I want to see if this doctor has anything less than five stars, right? That's where we start. If he has anything less than five stars, we're not going to him. We're going to go somewhere else. And I've done this process many times in my life. You can ask my wife. I start there. Somebody says a doctor's name, I want to review him. I want to see what's going on. And then I want to know... Where is he at in his field? Where is he at in terms of the top of his class? Where did he go to school? What was his education? I'd like to know those things. You know, the guy who's sitting in his basement, who's wanting to be a brain surgeon, who's getting his education online, makes me super nervous. That is not what I want out of my doctor. And I would say that the same is true, not in the sense of online training. I'm just using that because I think doctors need to be in the actual field and uh, taking bones out or whatever doctors do. You know, those things that the doctors do that are helpful to individuals. Right? Maybe, I guess, putting bones back in. I, I want to see that that has happened physically. Like not simulation, right? Not this little thing. No, with their hands. I want to know that that's taken place. The same is true with the leadership process in the church. With the right intentions, with the more you um, train the leaders of the church, the more that, that biblical churches pour into that process, the greater result you're going to have. The greater quality of men you're going to have. The greater quality of leadership a church is going to have and then as goes the leadership, so goes the church. Let me give you an example of how this process works here at Countryside. Because again, I think it's helpful to understand this. That there is a process by which men become elders. And let me tell you, it is a long process. And it's a long process for a very good reason. There has to be a time of of vetting, a time of evaluation, a time of observation to see all of those things so that when that man is finally ordained as an elder into the church, that everybody's on the same page saying, yeah, that's the right decision. How many of you were in the first service? That's good. You guys caught the, you caught the bug. First service is all the rage. It's great. Right? You saw Arnold installed as an elder this morning. That, that has been a very extensive, long process. From the time where the rest of the elder board identified him as a potential man as they had seen his life for several years, put him, put him in their purview, put him on their list, to the point where they would then go have a discussion with him and ask him if this is anything he would ever desire to do. Why? Because 1 Timothy 3 says, 
That if any man aspires to the office, to the work of an elder, that there has to be a desire there. If a guy doesn't want to be an elder, regardless of how his character is, regardless of how gifted he is, if he doesn't have the desire, he shouldn't be an elder. And so it starts there, and then you start working through this process. You start hearing about his life. You start hearing his testimony. You start looking at his family. You start seeing how he operates in all of these different ways. For a guy that's not as well known, we have this teacher training process. Guys will get put into this this cohort where they will be able to, to preach several messages in front of some leadership to be able to evaluate, is this guy gifted to teach? Why? Because as we'll see in this text, being gifted to teach is essential to the office of an elder. And so that whole process takes place over a number of months and and years. And now we have these two books that have been written, Becoming a Biblical Leader, Becoming a Biblical Elder. And so one of our elders will take this elder candidate and take him through this book. And it's no small book. It is a big book. And he will walk through. And so by the time he's ready for his exam, he can sit in front of the entire elder board and he can answer 45 minutes worth of biblical knowledge questions from memory, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, thing after thing after thing, many, many pages, many, many important aspects about those books. And then he can sit and answer questions concerning every aspect of systematic theology. And then he's questioned concerning apologetics. He's questioned concerning pastoral counseling. And so by the time this whole process is done, looked at his life, looked at his family, looked at his character, looked at his ability to understand the scriptures, through that evaluation, and then have watched him, have evaluated him in terms of his teaching. You go through that whole process, and then we got to the point where we got with Arnold, you know, about a month ago, where he's then presented to the church as a potential elder. And then there's that other aspect of the process, because if he's going to lead people, there needs to be an affirmation of the people. And so he goes through that 30 days kind of probation period where people encourage him or if there's any issues, they talk to him, they talk to the rest of the elders. And then we get to the point where we got to this morning. And it's it's a wonderful experience where he's then installed as an elder in this church. But but you can see in that there's, there's an identification because of observation. And then there is a training process not just picking a guy because he looks good and putting him in a position. That was not what Titus was supposed to do. And again, let me be clear. This process, this one that I just, just, just described that happens here, it doesn't look the same in all churches. It doesn't, and it doesn't have to. I think Countryside is a good model for churches to follow. I, I, I'm a little biased by that, but, but I think it's a good, a good model. I think it's a biblical model. But the process doesn't have to look the same, but, but there does have to be some way, some way in that church that qualified men are identified and prepared and put into the office of elder for the church to function how God intended it to. If that doesn't happen, it's going to create issues. So if elders must be identified, they must be prepared and examined and appointed, what 
then is their character to look like? So in terms of identifying them and observing them, what are those characteristics? Well, look at verse 6. It says, first of all, he must be a man who is above reproach. Above reproach. This term functions as an overarching characteristic that includes all of his spheres of life. It's a summary characteristic. It is, it is an umbrella characteristic, so to speak, that is fleshed out by the qualities that are listed after it. So when you see that term, he is to be above reproach, you think of it as this massive umbrella, and everything that's going to come under that is going to describe what that means for this man to be above reproach. And this is clear. This is clear by the fact that that being above reproach is, is, a, is repeated again in verse 7. Look down at verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach. And by the placement in the clause, in the original language, it gives prominence to this particular characteristic in this paragraph. Paul also gives this character quality at the outset to Timothy as the premier overarching qualification of an elder in the church. In fact, down in verse 7 in, in 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul says that this man must be above reproach. That is to say that it is absolutely necessary for the man who leads God's church to have a blameless character. A blameless character character. It's not up for negotiation. What does that mean? Well, first it means that they must be Christians. They must be Christians. Now, I know that should go without saying, but it needs to be said. Elders must be Christians. And we see that how, in how Paul uses this term with the Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him and all speech in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this term at the outset of this letter to the church in Corinth, to encourage them that as saints of God, that they are going to be confirmed as blameless before Christ one day. What we need to understand is when Paul is using this term to the Corinthians, that he's simply referring to their righteousness received by faith. He's talking about the fact that they will be blameless before God one day in heaven. Every Christian will find their final justification before God one day. That's the beauty of being in Christ. 
right? Because of Christ's righteousness, because that has been imputed to our accounts, because we've been declared righteous by the Father based on that reality. One day we will receive final justification or, or glorification where we will be presented blameless and we will be blameless before God. That's the hope of every Christian. That's the, the joy of every Christian. And Paul was even able to say that to this church of Corinth. And this church of Corinth had every problem you can ever imagine. Pro problems that, that, that no church should ever have to deal with, that no Christian should ever be involved in. But he says at the outset to them, listen, you're going to be blameless before Christ. Not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is. And so we see the sense of that word in that text, that, that every elder must be, must be a Christian. They must be one who is going to be finally justified before God one day, glorified before God one day. That they will be presented blameless based on the righteousness of Christ. Paul was not saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that they were blameless in their character. And you go on to read the rest of the letter and you understand that. He was going to talk about all of these issues and confront them in their sin. They were justified by faith in Christ and therefore in the day of judgment they would be considered blameless in reference to their eternal destiny. So first of all, they must be Christians. It doesn't mean that this must be a perfect man. We know this is impossible. All people are sinners, and though believers are those sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and freed from the power of sin, we still exist in our corrupt flesh, awaiting the glorification of our bodies. You know this. There is still a sin principle that remains in our unredeemed flesh. This is why Paul, over and over in his epistles, commands us to put the flesh to death. And it's in the present tense, so it's a, it's a constant putting the flesh to death. It is daily fighting your battle with sin, fighting in your battle with sin. Whatever those, those sins are that, that are particularly a struggle for you, as a Christian, you struggle with those things because sin still remains in your flesh. You're awaiting for that day of glorification, of final justification, and so you fight. You put it to death. But the truth remains that sin, sin still exists in every Christian. Because of this, no believer, no matter how far along he is in the sanctification process, is completely sinless. We know that John says in 1 John 1.8 that if any so-called Christian claims to be sinless, that they are deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. So this term above reproach, this term blameless, cannot mean sinless. What being above reproach means, first of all, he has to be a Christian. But more to the point of exactly what Paul is getting at here in our text, is that this man's character keeps him free from any accusations that can actually stick and be proven as true. 
This man's character keeps him free from any accusations that can actually stick and be proven as true. Notice that it does not mean that he is free from accusation. We know that because Paul was constantly accused of things. The other apostles were accused of things. And they were accused of all kinds of things. So it's not accusation in general. It's, it's accusations that can actually be proven as true. Sinful accusations against an elder in his life that can be proven as true. This means that a man who has been granted Christ's righteousness through faith in the gospel, causing him to be blameless before God judicially, is living in a way where he is manifesting that righteousness practically. Yarborough in his commentary describes blamelessness as this man exhibiting strong signs of the presence of divine grace that transforms their lives in godly directions. I love that. That, that the signs of the presence of divine grace. MacArthur notes that the Greek word that is used to coin our term above reproach was used in Paul's day in the legal system. It was used of a, a person who was not subject even to indictment, much less trial. He couldn't even been brought up to be indicted. There wasn't even enough evidence to, to, to convene a grand jury, much less to take him to trial and have there be a prosecutor and a defense attorney. To be above reproach is to not have a sinful defect that could cause one's moral character to be called into question. To be above reproach is to be free from disqualification. To be above reproach is to be godly and exemplary. This is what Paul tells Titus and what Paul tells Timothy must be true at the outset of the man who is going to shepherd God's flock. And we'll see in these verses below next time, but uh, we'll see that the man who leads God's church must be proven and exemplary so that the church will trust them and follow them. That's why this must be true. And we will also see how being above reproach is further defined in rapid-fire succession as, as we continue to observe this blueprint that God has laid out for establishing leadership in his church. Again, he's going to flesh this out. But as we close our time together this morning, let me say that though this qualification for being above reproach is given as a necessity in the context of the life of a man who was called to lead God's church, you must understand that you should see this as a necessary trait in your life as a normal Christian. Yes, Paul says it's an absolute must for every man who is going to lead. But the reality is Christians should see this as normal in their lives. Christians should live in a way so that they cannot have accusations against them stick in any way. Christians should be godly and exemplary. Are you blameless 
First of all, in your standing before God judicially. Are you a Christian? (laughs) Because it doesn't matter what your character is like if you're not a Christian. Isaiah 64 tells us that all of our righteousness before God is as filthy rags if if we haven't come to him on his terms, which is through Christ, through the suffering servant. Are you blameless in your standing before God judicially? When you stand before God and he asks you why you should be able to, be, to come into to his kingdom, to heaven, what are you going to tell him? Are you going to come to him with, with all of your quote-unquote righteous deeds that you have done? You're going to say, God, look at this. Look at how I treated this person. Look how I treated my family. Look at how I did this. Because if you are, that's not going to work. Now, that's not going to get you in. The only way that you are going to get in is if you are perfect. And the only way that you're going to be perfect is if you have the righteousness of Christ that has been granted to your account, has been imputed into your account so that when the Father sees you, he sees Christ. He sees the perfection of his Son because then you are seen as blameless, judicially, legally, forensically. You are now granted that status because of Christ. If you're not, if you've not been declared righteous, if you've not been converted, if you've not repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, well, then that's where you have to go with this text. As you have to say, God, I want to be blameless before you, not because of my own righteousness, but because of Christ. I want you to see Christ. I know I'm unworthy. I know I'm a sinner. And I hate that sin, and I want to turn from that sin, and I want Christ to be my Savior to be the one who presents me as blameless. You need to come to him today if that's where you are. You need that first. Because without that, he's never going to begin working on your character. It's all going to be as filthy rags before him. But if you come to him, if you come to him, he is going to begin to sanctify you. He is going to begin to change you from the inside out. He is going to make that judicial righteousness practical righteousness. And you are going to begin to look more and more like Jesus. And so secondly, believer, I ask you, what about your life? Yes, one day you will stand before God and you will enter heaven based on the righteousness of Christ, but are you living in a way right now that's causing that causes you to be free from any accusations sticking to you are there sin patterns in your life that you need to repent of so that you can live in a blameless way so that when a person looks at your life they say i 
I know them pretty well, and they seem to love Christ. You want that to be said of you. Do others see you as as an example with a life worth following? Again, we're going to see that in our text, that the church is going to follow the leadership, so he's got to have a life that's worthy to be followed. Do you have a life that's worthy to be followed? People say, man, I really want my life one day to get there. About you. Is there a sin defect? Is there a besetting sin that you need to truly repent of and forsake so that your character will be considered exemplary? Are you growing? Are you walking with the Lord? But there's still that thing. There's still that thing that I just don't, I can't get a handle on this. Then repent of that. Truly come to the God of grace and say, God, I want to be exemplary for your glory, to give me an opportunity to to represent you, to, to preach the truth to others with my words and with my life. Then truly repent of that. It is God and his amazing grace will forgive you and will, will help you to become that exemplary person. This is something to strive for. You won't ever reach it in perfection. None of us will ever reach this in perfection. This is what it means to continue to work out your sanctification, your salvation with fear and trembling. When Paul says that in Philippians 2, that's what he's talking about. Day in, day out, fighting sin, getting to that point where you're evaluating your life. You're saying, by God's grace, these things that, that could stick to me as accusations are falling off because of God's kindness. Continuing to fight, continuing to work. This is to be, friend, your lifelong pursuit. Every Christian's lifelong pursuit is this. You want to be a useful vessel for Christ to use in building his kingdom? That happens when you commit to living a blameless life. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our time together today. Father, though we did not progress very far in this text, I pray that the, the things that were harped on will be for the good of our own souls. Lord, that we will understand that what you have prescribed in your word for the leadership of your church is what must be. There, there aren't other creative ways to do this that you have established this way. And Father, for these students, thank you for the joy of, of having them here, and having them at Countryside. And I pray that they will soak in everything that they are able to get here. And Father, as you might take them to other places one day or whatever you might have for them, that they will find churches that that operate in the way in which you prescribed concerning having leaders be who they ought to be and trained as they ought to be. And Father, for our lives as individuals, I pray that you will help us to strive to be blameless. 
Again, not in any way to earn favor. That could never be done. Only Christ earns your favor. And we are favored by you because of him, but, but because we want to be used by you. We want to be effective for you. Lord, we want to represent you well. So help us to do that. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.